Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 62, Quran, Surah 101, Al-Qara'ah, The Calamity. The Calamity. What is the calamity? Ah, uh, what will convey unto you what the calamity is? A day wherein mankind will be as thickly scattered moths, the mountains will become as carded wool. Then, as for him whose scales are heavy with good works, he will live a pleasant life. But as for him whose scales are light, a bereft and hungry one will be his mother. Ah, what will convey unto thee what she is? Raging fire. And now the Arabic, as recited by Saad al-Ghamdi. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Al-Qari'atum al-Qari'ah. Wa ma adraka mal-Qari'ah. Yawma yakunun nasu kal-Farash al-Madfuk. Wa takunu al-Jibal kal-Ihni al-Manfush. I really love a good fire and brimstone, Sora. I really do. It's just like a fire and brimstone sermon at church. It's great almost for the simple novelty of it. Because like in ancient Mecca, this is something that is mostly absent from the modern world, at least where I'm from. Now, if you're listening in, say, Africa, you know, just go ahead and laugh a little and pity the poor quality of religion in the Western world. And send missionaries because we need them. So I may be a minority. But when I go to church, I want to hear the verbal equivalent of a smack to the head. Not that I want to be scared or follow God because I'm scared of burning forever. I mean, that works on some people, and, and that's fine, but I'm not one of them. As the Islamic mystic Rabia said, O Lord, if I worship you out of fear of hell, burn me in hell. If I worship you in the hope of paradise, forbid it to me. But if I worship you for your own sake, do not deprive me of your eternal beauty. So why do I love this kind of thing? I want to hear fire and brimstone, like I said, kind of like a verbal smack to the head. You know, a reminder that what I see every day is not really the real world, or at least an incomplete view of it. I want something to jar me out of my day-to-day -day complacency to show something beyond my perception, something grand and powerful, a reminder that our God is an awesome God. And that's exactly what this Sora is. It's trying to jar people out of their earthly delusions. And what makes this Sora great, and it's why I started with the concept of a preacher giving a sermon, is that this Sora follows the outline of a great Christian sermon. It grabs your attention. It conveys the power of God, 
It warns of the danger of wickedness and the virtue of goodness. It tells how God will separate the two eventually. And it even leaves a ray of hope at the end for those who trust in God, but may not have the greatest uh, balance of works. It's great stuff. It's something you can contemplate endlessly. So at the beginning, we have the attention grabber, the verbal smack to the head, the calamity. Now, starting the first three lines with the word calamity is certainly a way to grab people's attention. The calamity. What is the calamity? Ah, uh, what will convey unto you what the calamity is? So, calamity. This word, calamity, it gives the surah its title, at least in English. In Arabic, the word is al kara. The calamity is the most common translation of this word, but that word also implies that the thing being described is also sudden and quick, maybe unexpected. You'll see this translated as also the striking disaster, the day of noise and clamor. It has a negative connotation in most cases, like, say, catastrophe or sudden misfortune. The verbal root of this word, it describes many terrible things, like to strike, to rebuke, to fight, and of course the most cruel of them all, to go bald. Al-Qara'at is also the name given to the series of calamities that befell Muslims in the wars against Islam. Now, a lost battle is certainly Al-Qara'at. You know, it's often negative, except that is, of course, when it's being used in a religious context, which it is, obviously, if it's in the Quran. Then it becomes one of the many proper nouns for the last day. For example, the Day of Judgment in capital letters, the proper noun, Day of Judgment. And that is something that is most definitely sudden, but it's really only a calamity or a catastrophe for those whose scales are light, as the Surah says. So for some, it's a great thing. So really, this word, it's simultaneously a catastrophe and a wonderful miracle. And this calamitous word, this promise of change, it's used three times in a row, almost like it's striking the reader or the person listening. And striking, as in the verbal root of the word, what that means, to strike. It's striking the reader with something important, something earth-shattering, something that will change things forever. And then it tries to describe, and with an almost ingrained sense of humility, you know, due to the limitations of language, to really describe this event, because it really can't. You know, it then at least attempts to describe the power of Alkara'a, a day wherein mankind will be as thickly scattered moths and the mountains will become as carded wool. Now that is some powerful imagery, even though I don't even know what carded wool is. Do you know what carded wool is? I have no idea, but I know what wool is and obviously it's going to, you know, float out into the sky. 
So even with that, this is just a great mind-jarring metaphor, displaying what God can do and how insignificant we are by comparison, and an upending of what we consider to be physically possible. And it works. Even in the modern world, it works. There is no man-made creation, even a thermonuclear weapon, that can scatter people like moths and blow mountains around like fluffy wool. Only God can do that. And it gives mankind a more natural vision of the incomprehensible power of God. And I should also note, this seems like a small thing, but this is actually pretty important, that traditionally the calamity in the religious sense it is not viewed as a destruction of anything. It's about change, not destruction. It's not the end of the world, but a new world. And really, if you think about it, destruction and change are different takes on the same thing. When a fire burns down a building, is that building destroyed or is it just changed? And really the material wasn't annihilated, that's impossible. It was just changed into something else. Different things with a different chemical makeup. Just like our bodies will never actually be destroyed, they just become something else. Now, similarly, you know, when a star dies, you know, and when the sun basically consumes the earth, is the earth destroyed or is it just changed into stardust? And that's another cool thing here, because this is almost a description here in the Quran of what modern scientists believe will actually happen in the future when our sun turns into a red giant. And it's almost describing the change that will ensue. The sun will expand, consuming Mercury and Venus, and eventually probably the Earth. And it will then pull back, turning into a dense mass the size of the Earth. So, the mountains really will be blown away like wool in the wind if the science holds. You know, it may not. It usually doesn't over millennia. But for now, that's what we have. So like in the Quran, this isn't destruction. It's change. And good people should not fear this change. And that brings us to the promise to the good here. Then, as for him whose scales are heavy with good works, he will live a pleasant life. So what we have here is a cosmic scale, and presumably it is measuring good works. Now, in Muhammad's time, there was no such thing as a digital scale or something that could just tell you, hey, this weighs 10 grams or kilograms or pounds or whatever. The only way to weigh something was to balance it with something else. In this case, not explicitly, but presumably, that other thing is an evil deed or evil deeds. So having a heavy scale, in this case, is a good thing. And it's pretty simple and straightforward here. And that brings us to the promise to the wicked. You know, but as for those whose scales are not heavy, and this is a bit less explicit, you know, use, you know, especially using the English translation that I did. The Marmaduke Pickthall translation is very different than the others, particularly in this 
uh, Sora, and I'll show you why in a bit. But first, let me just give you the Pickthal translation, followed by a few other more common translations of this little bit. Um, <clears throat> Pickthal says, but as for him whose scales are light, a bereft and hungry one will be his mother. Ah, what will convey unto thee what she is? Raging fire. So note the part about the mother, followed by the she pronoun. Let me read it again. But as for him whose scales are light, a bereft and hungry one will be his mother. Ah, what will convey unto thee what she is? Raging fire. Okay, so let me give those same lines with some more common commentators, you know, ones who are just trying to provide more context. You know, Pickthall is much more willing to just spit the poetry and confuse the reader. You know, let the cards fall where they may. But here's two more common uh, translations of those four lines. First, the Sahe International says, but as for one whose scales are light, his refuge will be an abyss. And what can make you know what that is? It is a fire, intensely hot. And now the Mustafa Kitab, known for its more modern vernacular. And as for those whose scale is light, their home will be the abyss. And what will make you realize what that is? It is a scorching fire. So what's missing? What's not in the non-Pickthal translations here? You know, it's very, very different. And the reason is that probably for reasons of clarity, most translations completely skip over or relegate to footnotes the confusing language that Pickthal runs straight into. And so they don't even mention mothers or women or any of that. You know, when Pickthal says, a bereft and hungry one will be his mother, what does that mean? In Arabic, it's in the text. So it just is. So Pickthal's style is just to print it. Say, hey, that's it says what it says. You know, he just prints the poetry, leaves you to figure it out. A bereft and hungry one will be his mother. I've also seen this as his mother will be an abyss. So what is this? Well, what do mothers have to do with any of this? The Arabic phrase in Ayat 9 can be seen as describing a mother and in some interpretations more specifically as a nursing mother. So hell is being described as a nursing mother. Why is that? This is a great way of showing the nature of what is to come. It's not just an eternal punishment for wickedness. I mean, it can be if a person is particularly stubborn or stupid, but hell is being described as a mother nursing a child. Because really, if you are in hell, you are a helpless spiritual infant. That's how you got there in the first place. But if you want, the fire can be purifying rather than punitive a chance to be nursed by Mother God until you are ready to move on to solid spiritual food. And when you do, 
you just won't be capable of the embrace of the hellfire. You know, you'll just be physically too big. The hellfire can't wrap itself around you. Now, this is a physical description of something spiritual, but you may have experienced something like this in your own life. When you look back, and in hindsight, you just cannot believe you used to think like that, to act like that. You look back at your former cage, and you cannot believe you managed to wedge yourself in there. And voluntarily, too, it was a choice. Really, you're only where you are in the afterlife because you want to be, which is a common theme in Dante's Inferno, for example. You are separated from God because you want to be. And that blindness is usually a result of the blinders put on by some of the more negative aspects of human nature, which is summed up in the seven deadly sins. Which would be a great example of that. These are the things that blind you to God, the things that cause you to willingly separate from God. Now, as I usually do, I want to emphasize that the other translations, the non-Pickthal translations, they're not wrong. They're not trying to hide anything. They're just trying to make it make sense. You know, it's a stylistic choice. You know, they are simply describing the other possibility of this phrase too, because the same word is used to describe an all-encompassing embrace, and not necessarily in a good way, as in that sinful person his embrace will be an abyss. He will be embraced by nothingness because in following sin and rejecting God, that person has really embraced nothingness. So an embrace can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. An embrace from a boa constrictor, for example, well, that's bad. But an embrace from a mother is good. And given the motherly language here, this is more hopeful than it is terrifying. Because after all, who is really afraid of their mother? You know, perhaps you're afraid of disapproval or a loss of love at some kind of deep primitive level, but you're not physically afraid of her. Because even in the worst moments, when the child is at his most foul, selfish, ignorant, and frustrating, a mother still loves her child just as God still loves his creation. And those who love God need not fear this change, even if the mountains are being overturned. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. 
I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.